0: Well, hey, let me ask a question as we begin. Um, this might be a question that makes you uncomfortable or you're not, you weren't expecting to hear from the pulpit, but how many of you, I would actually want to see a show of hands, how many of you have a tattoo? If you're willing to do this. I don't have a tattoo. I can't raise my hand. So, a handful of you. Uh, <laughs> probably never thought you'd hear that question. <laughs> um, the reason I asked the question is I, I came across this article in the Atlantic Monthly recently. It's, it's actually from 2014. But uh, it's called The Identity Crisis Under the Ink. Really short article, really interesting article. Here's what the article, how the article begins. Some weeks ago, during a bleary-eyed subway ride to work, I found myself staring at a young woman on the other side of the car. She wore business attire with a North Face jacket and flip-flops, and she had an infinity symbol tattooed along the outside of her left foot. Only a portion of the loop had been left out to make room for the word love. Next to her, a scruffy guy in a T-shirt and jeans had an ornate black and gray murals inked on each arm, one of which seemed to depict an alien fight scene, the other some sort of robot love story. (laughs) To his left, squeezed in at the end of the bench, was a man thumbing his phone with quick, nervous jabs. When he turned his hand over, I saw the word Jasmine tattooed above his knuckles, and a date printed on it, or beneath it. And then there was me, (laughs) a blank canvas, wondering if I was missing something. (laughs) Each inked-up person on the train appeared to be in the same age group, millennials, and so being of the same generation, presumably we were all posting to social media on a regular basis through profiles and accounts that compel us to confront the same question, who are you? For some, that choice is liberating. It's a chance to start from scratch. For others, the sheer volume of options can be paralyzing. In either case, modernity compels us to declare our identity with conviction, whether we found it yet or not. Then the author goes on and says this, growing up in a rapidly changing and challenging world where we can recreate identities very easily, both online and in real life. Most young people, and I would just say most of us, whether we feel like we're young or not, at some point or another uh, are trying to figure out who we might be. And tattoos, recent research suggests, don't just express that identity, they help define it, quite literally. So in 2006, there's a woman named Anne Veliquant, who's a professor at the University of Arkansas, who studies the relationship between consumer behavior and popular culture. She conducted this interview-based study of tattoos and how they're used as a way to cement or ink identity uh, and aspects of our current selves. And she said this, we were hoping to look at postmodern identity and really what we found is that in the postmodern era, people don't know who they are. They don't have a sense of their core self. And so they rely on tattoos oftentimes as a way to establish some sense of who they actually are. I don't know if that's the reason you got tattooed. Probably not. Maybe you did. Uh, not the reason I didn't, but it's more the cost factor. In. Um, but man, that's a, it's a good article. It makes me kind of want to go get a tattoo. But when you read it through a theological lens, um, what, what you discover is that a strong sense of self, uh, a strong sense of identity is, is mission critical as the foundation to a life of meaning, whether you find yourself in Christ or not. Like, I need to know that I'm loved. I need to know that I have a purpose. I need to know that someone's for me. Uh, you know, this guy Jasmine, whoever, Jasmine. I need to know there's somebody out in the world that knows my name, even when I fail. In other words, as uh, Anne Veloquan says, I need to have a core identity. And so to that in Jacob's story is just a story of that. It's a story as he wrestles, wrestles with God, emblematic of his own quest to understand who he is. Um, it's a story about identity. Jacob is facing the abyss of a question. Who am I, really? And when he begins to answer that question, as he quite literally wrestles with it, he doesn't get a tattoo, but he wrestles with it. He kind of gets a tattoo, I guess. He gets a new hip. But he experiences this miracle of deep interchange. One writer calls that his riverbank moment where um, his, his conversion experience, the moment when he faced up honestly to who he was, uh, experience God's blessing, and in the process became more truly who God created him to actually be, and then was empowered to be God's person in the world, God's in God's story. And so I want to invite us to engage his story uh, in that question this morning, since I think it can help us be really honest with ourselves, who we are, more receptive to the blessings God wants to give us, and then ultimately equip us, better equip us, uh, to join the work of God in our lives. And so we're going to do that this morning by kind of looking at the summons within Jacob's story. There's a few different summons in there that are all paramount to understanding our identity and flourishing. And here are the summons. We're we're summoned by Jacob's story to face the reality of who we are. That's in verse 27. We're summoned to experience the blessing of our brokenness. And then that's in verse 29, so kind of a sandwich here. And then we're summoned to receive the gift of our new name. So uh, face the reality of who we are, experience the blessing of our brokenness. And receive the gift of our new name, okay? And you can have Genesis 32 open with, uh, if you'd like. Uh, we're going to kind of study it together. So for, first for context, the, we, we're summoned to face the reality of who we are. In verse 27, you might recall, here's a little context, that Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. Um, they're actually, uh, so actually Esau was born first. Uh, but Jacob, you'll remember, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but was grabbing onto his heel as he went out. And that's kind of why he got his name. Um, and they've been estranged from each other for, since the 27th chapter of, of Genesis because, you remember, Jacob swindled Esau out of his inheritance, his blessing uh, from his father Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, who is this great patriarch. Um, he's now blind in this story. He's floundering kind of at the end of his life. He's duped by Jacob and his wife, Rebecca, uh, Isaac's uh, wife, Rebecca. But, um, and, you know, he's been encouraged, Jacob's been encouraged to take this money for himself. And and so Esau is, you can imagine, mad. And so he's after Jacob. He he literally wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob's on the run for his life. And over those next few chapters, Jacob goes on to make much of his life, in fact. He's off, away from Israel. Um, He does this by less than scrupulous means, if you read his story. If you could read the 27 to 32, it's a really good story. But Jacob is not a great guy in some ways. And yet throughout it all, God comes to his side, every time, offers guidance, promises presence, and just remains faithful to Jacob. Uh, and so to that end, Jacob, uh, God comes to Jacob and sends him back to Israel and says, live into the promise that I, I spoke over your life in Genesis 31. And Jacob says, sure, I'll go, <laughs> along with his wives, his children, his flocks. But it's with a lot of distress because, you know, he knows what's waiting for him back there, Esau. He um, so he's coming back when we get to chapter 32 And he hears that Esau is on his way to meet Jacob. So they're going to confront each other. And Esau has 400 men, armed men. And so Jacob is terrified, right? Because he's thinking, man, we're going to be attacked and I'm going to be killed. Um, I'm going to be held accountable for everything I've done. And I probably should be. So he divides up his entourage, you know, of servants and livestock. And he sends them out in waves. Remember this? And each wave is, is going to hit Esau first as he's coming with his men, as a way of sort of uh, pacifying Esau's rage toward him and maybe turning his heart toward Jacob. Right? Um, what a human! I mean, that in and of itself is a. This is such a great look at who we are and how we deal with conflict. But we're going to move on. So it's the night before the next day. The next day, Esau and Jacob are going to meet uh, tomorrow. It's going to be the day of reckoning. And, and nobody's come back to tell Jacob anything, so he doesn't know what's happened to all these people. For all he knows, they're all dead, and he's next. And, uh, and so he puts his wife and his children in front of him, and, and, and then he wants to be alone, right? In verse 23, he wants to be alone. Like many of us, I think, faced with similar circumstances, faced with a big decision. You have a big decision at work tomorrow, or failure, or fear and anxiety about the future. That makes perfect sense. He wants to think, he wants to pray, he wants to reflect, he wants some time, some headspace to be alone. Um, because tomorrow is the big day of crisis, and he needs to figure out how he's going to react to it, respond to it. And it's in that solitude, that moment of solitude, he's alone, utterly alone now, on that night that we pick up the story today, the day of reckoning, or the night before the day of reckoning, where Jacob is, is, he has this mysterious, very mysterious encounter with this man. I mean, did you notice that? He's, he's alone, and then suddenly, verse 24, he's not alone. A man, suddenly, a man, Jacob's alone, and a man, suddenly, comma, a man wrestles with him until daybreak. And as I started that this week, I'm like, who's that man? <laughs> Where did that man come from? It's like seriously out of a horror flick. Um, like, why is he out in the desert with Jacob? <laughs> and many will tell you, if you read all the commentaries, that that's God. It's God. And that's a, gr- that's a great interpretation. But let me just submit to you. And based on certain readings um, of verse 28, uh, for most of us, when we're left alone in our failures and fears and our doubts and anxiety and insecurity, yeah, God might be there. But oftentimes, and I'm just being real honest with you about myself, it's just me. Like I'm looking at the man in the mirror, and I'm asking myself, "Who are you? Who have you become? What are you going to do about that? Sometimes I'll have God there, and I'll have a real sense of God's leading. I don't know if you're with me on this, but oftentimes I'm just looking at myself in the mirror. And, I, and, and so wondering, like, what do I do? And so that's the question, really, the crux question of this story in our lives. Like, that's why this man says to Jacob, if he perhaps was looking in the mirror, what's your name? Because, see, uh, that would have been a really unsettling question for Jacob to be asked. He didn't like his name. The Hebrew meaning of Jacob's name, like I said, was uh, heel grabber, cheat or deceiver, actually. So he's born with Esau's twins, and he's grabbing onto Esau's heel. He'll bite her, actually. He might be grabbing on with his jaw. And it's that moment of heel biting or heel grabbing that's really emblematic of Jacob's character. Like every day, every moment of every day, his entire life, up until this moment, he's deceiving to get his way. He's lying, cheating, and stealing. He's living a lifestyle of trickery and guile. And so for 20 years, he's deliberately avoided using his own name. If you read his story, you can see the details. He once brought with Esau, his father, or he brought Isaac a roasted goat. This is where he's pretending to be Esau. And he put on, remember this, some uh, like a um, goat hair, like a coat, and covered himself because Esau was apparently hairy. And he told uh, Isaac, because Isaac couldn't see very well, I'm Esau. Another time, he meets the woman of his dreams, and... uh, and doesn't introduce himself as himself. Do you remember how he introduces himself? As a relative of her father. <laughs> Interesting. He didn't want to, like, if I meet the woman of my dreams, I'm going to probably tell her, hey, my name's Jack. And what's your name? Like, you're going to do that. And, and so these and other moments in Jacob's life seem to describe in a very symbolic way his struggle to accept himself, warts and all. And you can see, and, and so you can see how significant it is for him to be asked the question, what's your name? And equally significant that Jacob says, for the first time I think in his life, Jacob, my name is Jacob. In other words, he for the first time is becoming honest with himself, with God. He's just becoming real. Like he can't hide anymore. He's all alone. He's no longer pretending to be Esau in disguise, his mother's son. He's not pretending or posing to be one of the great patriarchs of Israel. He's just acknowledging who he's been, what he's done. I'm Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm The one who cheated my brother, I deceived my father, I um, lied, I stole, I exploited. (laughs) He's admitting that he'd become a wrecking ball and that he'd caused wreckage in hundreds of lives. And that um, in that wreckage, uh, in this moment of radical self-honesty, he's being open for the first time to the ways of God. Um, For God to give him a new name, as we're going to look at in a few minutes. So friends, the, the, the application for us here is, is significant. I don't want you to miss, miss this. The, the miracle of deep interchange that happens in Jacob can happen for us. And it always happens and only happens if we face ourselves. Uh, God can hardly transform us if we don't willingly reveal ourselves to God and to others and to ourselves. Jacob reminds us of that. If, we can't be honest, if you can't be honest with who you are, you can't really be you. <laughs> and that. And if we really want to experience the interchange, the deep interchange that God wants to cause in our lives, we have to acknowledge God's presence in those parts of our lives that need transformation, that need change. So, so God wants to take all that you are, every every piece, the good, the not so good, the hidden, the revealed, the light, the dark, all of it, and turn it into something that you could never muster for yourself. And so that's the magnitude of this story. Like, how the moments of raw self-awareness and radical honesty can become vehicles for rich blessing. The moments of raw self-awareness and radical honesty can become vehicles for rich blessing when God's involved. And this is not like kind of self, um, whatever you call that, yeah, flagellation or whatever. This is just facing God and saying, God, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is who I've become. And then inviting God to get involved with the core of who you are and see what can emerge out of that, which is the second summons in Jacob's story. So the first summons is, is just to to kind of be honest with who you are. The second is this: to experience the, the blessing of that brokenness. So verse twenty nine, actually verse twenty four again. Jacob's alone; he's wrestling with this mysterious man in the mirror till daybreak. Verse twenty five: while they're wrestling, wrestling Jacob puts uh, or Jacob puts the man in an ancient. No, the man puts Jacob in an ancient nearest Eastern kind of figure four. I told some people we were going to do some wrestling talk this morning. You know, WWF. There you go. And he dislocates his hip, right? Thanks for laughing. Okay, that's my joke for the day. And then strangely, actually, we're going to take it a little further, the man taps out and says, let me go. The day's come. And then Jacob responds, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I mean, he's so tenacious, right? He's got a dislocated hip, and he's like, I'm just going to win. I'm still going to win Somehow. After which, there's that whole naming thing, which we're going to get to. And then verse 29, Jacob asks the man's name. The man says, why are you asking me my name? And then, kind of a non-sequitur, the man blesses him there. Okay? And now, because of what happens next, Jake, uh, Jacob, which na- Jacob names that place, Peniel, where this all happens. The traditional reading of, of that whole episode I just described to you is, is that the, the there there is Peniel, the place in which this happened. And that's a fine interpretation. Let me suggest, though, my question, well, actually my question is, what if the there there's an, not the place where this happened, but the, but the place of God's blessing on Jacob's life? Here's what I mean by that. Verse 25, the man touched Jacob's hip, weakening and wounding it, okay? And, and then says, let me go. We're done. I've done my work, the day's come, okay? Jacob says, no, not till you bless me. Verse 27, the man says, what's your name? Jacob, for the first time in his life, says, Jacob, radical honesty. Yep, I've blown it. I've lied. I've cheated. I'm the heel. Verse 29, the man blesses him there. Do you see it? Do you see the connections? When we face up to ourselves at a deep level, we experience God's blessing. Um, we're not cursed by God because we're broken. The God of the Bible loves to bless, and the blessings come in many different surprising ways. Like, oftentimes God wants to bless areas where he's present and affirms our worth and, 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 and a sense of belonging and a, a awareness of his spirit with hope for the future. That's oftentimes how God blesses. But other times, and this is the witness of Jacob's story, God blesses us in and through areas of brokenness, in our weakness, where we failed, <laughs> Where we, where we, when we're radically honest with ourselves and with others, God likes to bless there, <laughs> where there isn't strength, where there isn't vitality, where, in your, where you're suffering loss and pain, where you're doubt. I mean, I once heard that um, faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. Um, doubt is necessary to; it's a necessary ingredient of faith, and God wants to bless you in that, in that journey of questioning. Like God, what's true? I've been taught all these things my whole life. I don't know anymore. God says, yes, you're on the right path. Um, Brennan Manning, actually one of my favorite authors, he struggled his whole life, maybe not with doubt, but with an alcohol addiction. Um, and yet, <laughs> he found in, those, in the midst of those times really rich words to, to express God's grace and describe what God's doing in his life. Um. And I need to find the right page. So in this book, one of the first books I read as a new Christian uh, called The Ragamuffin Gospel. How many of you read this book at one time or another? So a bunch of you might know this story. He says this, talking about Jacob. He says, most of the descriptions of the victorious life do not match the reality of my own. Hyperbole, bloated rhetoric, grandiose testimonies create the impression that once Jesus has acknowledged as Lord... The Christian life becomes a picnic on a green lawn. Marriages blossom into colossal or into connubial bliss. I don't even know what connubial means, so colossal bliss. Physical health flourishes, acne disappears, sinking careers suddenly soar. The victorious life is proclaimed to mean that everybody's a winner. It goes on to say this, that miracles occur, just put yourself in the church. Conversions abound, church attendance skyrockets, ruptured relationships get healed, Shy people become gregarious. The Seattle Mariners win the World Series. He actually says Atlanta Braves in there, but we can all identify with the Mariners. It's never going to happen. Idyllic descriptions of victory in Jesus are more often colored by cultural and personal expectations than by Christ. Idyllic, hear that? Idyllic descriptions of victory in Jesus are more often colored by cultural and personal expectations than by Jesus. Then he goes on to say that the Bible depicts another picture of the victorious life, Jacob, the biblical image of the victorious life reads more like a victorious limp in this story. Jacob was victorious not because he never flinched, talked back, or questioned, or, or swindled, or lied, or deceived, but having done those things, he remained faithful. Or God, I should say, God remained faithful to him. See, what makes authentic disciples, Manon says, is not visions, ecstasies, biblical mastery of chapter and verse, or spectacular success in ministry or otherwise, but a capacity for faithfulness, buffeted, By fickle winds of failure, battered by your own unruly emotions, bruised by rejection, ridicule, authentic disciples may have stumbled and frequently fallen, endured lapses and relapses, gotten handcuffed to the flesh pots, wandered into a far country, and yet they keep coming back to Jesus. After life life has lined their faces a little bit, and some of us have some lines on our faces, right? Many followers of Jesus come to a coherent sense of themselves for the first time. When they modestly claim, I'm a ragamuffin, but I'm different, I'm changed, I've got a new hip, (laughs) I've got a limp, and they're right, where sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Do you, I mean, do you hear that, the witness of Jacob's story for us, like, he's coming to a coherent sense of himself, not a sort of um, isolated sense of himself or, or 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 a compartmentalized sense of himself, he's a liar, he's a thief. He's, fear, he's afraid, he's anxious, and yet he's blessed. He's called, he's loved, he's chosen, he's used by God. And so the application for us, the starting point of your transformation is never, ever, ever get better so you can be acceptable and useful to God. Never. The starting point is that God loves you, as Richard said last week, with an everlasting, infinite, and unconditional love. That's the message of Jesus' most famous story, the prodigal son, where, who, like Jacob, he blew it royally, went off, to a far country just like Jacob and then there in that far country came to a coherent sense of himself in Luke 15, 17 and then on his way as he's on his way home listen to this to confess to be radically honest guess what he's met by his father who preemptively forgave him didn't wait for the confession preemptively Luke 15, 20 while the son was still a long way off the father saw him was filled with compassion for him ran toward him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's the gospel. God preemptively loves us, forgives us, and runs out toward us. That's the story of countless others for generations. Indeed, it's significant that, to know that Jesus imparted that kind of gift on people throughout his life who committed adultery, unjust tax collectors, hated Roman soldiers. There's not a single person in Jesus' ministry who received the gift of a new identity because identity they performed well because somehow they were killing it in ministry or killing it in life. Instead, the truth is that our identity is released through our brokenness, not in spite of it. That's what Jesus means in John 12, when he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, if it's broken, it produces many seeds. It's another way for Jesus to say that there's life inherent to seeds, just like there's identity inherent to all of you. But there's a shell, (laughs) There's a really hard shell around that seed. And unless that shell is split open, unless the, unless the outer shell of your life is broken, the core truth of who you are cannot, it will not emerge. But once it has, once something in you is broken, that core truth, you begin to flower, the you that's you begins to flower and flourish. Do you see that? How the inner life of Christ begins to come out of our outer lives. So it's, it's imperative, <laughs> whatever that outer life might look like, Whether it's the breaking of our hypocrisy and pretending that we're more than we are. I know that's a journey for me. Just always pretending that I'm more than I actually am. Just like Jacob. Or the breaking of our shame, like living under this cloud of feeling like you're less than you are for some reason because somebody said something about you. You experienced a failure. Whether that's the breaking of a preemptive pattern of disengagement uh, because of past hurts. So you preemptively disengage. I do that all the time. Uh, or breaking um, with a mindset of scarcity, where you think there's never going to be enough, enough of me, enough time, enough resources, so you hold tightly to things. Uh, Whatever in your life needs to be broken, know that it's broken because the you, the the you that's you is there, and God wants that to break forth out of that place. Should the outward life remain unbroken, the inward life will never be able to come forth. So that's what in your life needs to be broken. What in your life needs breaking so that you, the you that's you, I'm looking at all you, and there's a you that's you, that's <laughs> more truly you than you, you, if you get this. And what needs to be broken so that you can break forth and not only um, flourish body and soul, as we'll talk about, but, but bless this community, bless this city, bless this world? Um, that's the question, and that's the question that leads to this final summons, okay? So, so sandwiched between this new self-awareness, just kind of looking look in the mirror, and then a blessed brokenness. God gives Jacob a new name. Real quick. Verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, the heel, but Israel, the one who struggled with God and humans and has overcome. Now think about this for a moment. Think of how significant this moment is. Our names are really important to us. This is why we, when we do dedications here, we often ask parents, what's your child's name, and why did you choose that name? What's significant about the name? It's the first thing, first gift you received when you came into the world. Think about that. The first thing you received when you came to this world, maybe other than a breath of air, is your name. And more often than not, they're chosen with great thought and care. We have them until we die, and then even afterwards. They're put on gravestones or, or mantles or on books. They're the way in which we're recognized and loved and remembered. So in the culture of the biblical time, um, where Jacob stands names carried even greater significance. So that, that's to say, your name was a description of who you were in some way and what you were meant to become. They're given in order to describe the essence of a person's character. So you have Jacob, the heel. I mean, that's, ah, oh, think of the burden that that was on his shoulders for his whole life. Uh, I'm guessing there needed to be some healing in his relationship with his mom and his dad. Um, but God didn't wait for that to happen, <laughs> preemptively chose Jacob and renamed him Israel. See, in those days, Israel carried some powerful meanings. Uh, By giving Jacob the name Israel, God was saying to him, you're no longer the cheat, you're no longer the deceiver, you're no longer the one who always skirts the issue. From now on, you're Israel, the one whom God rules, the one whose life is now tied up with God's story, the one who can face hard things head on. Amazingly, uh, Jacob immediately receives that name, embraces the name, and lives up to it. We don't, if you look at the rest of the story, he doesn't trick a single person another time. He's done with trickery, no deception. He has the humility. In fact, if you, if you look at the story next with Esau, Esau comes the next day, and he bows before Esau seven times, which is a way of saying, I'm really, 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 really sorry, which leads to a reconciled relationship and, and the healing of all the past hurts and hatred. I'm sure there was still stuff to work out, but it was a beginning because he received the new name, I can face hard things. There was a courage in him to lead the nation. He, uh, he was no longer an escapist. He changed from being someone who always tried to evade hard things to being somebody who could face those and hold those. He was empowered with a new way of living. So <laughs> here's the application question for you. Like how? <laughs> like... Uh, Great, Jack, that God has a new name for me and God has a new future for me and I've been defined for all these years by my sins and failures and God has a future. Great, but how do I find out what that name is? (laughs) Like, I would love to know. I've been asking the same question my whole life, Jack. And obviously we can't go to the River Jabbok and wrestle with God. That would be ridiculous to try. I joked with folks we could close the doors and have like a wrestling match here today, but we're not gonna do that. Um, So what would it look like for us to engage this question, like, what's my new name? Well, if you've been here the past couple weeks, um, I began the new year kind of thinking a lot about what it means to be in Christ. And, uh, uh, and so I, re- I heard at the beginning of the year, at the end of last year, that, that some 160 th- times Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, in his letters. And yet never once uses the word Christian, and I often have thought of myself as a Christian and these binary terms of Christian, non Christian. I have Christian, non Christian friends. We're a Christian church, and then there's apparently non Christian churches. And so Paul doesn't get into those weeds. He says, You're just in Christ. And then he, he, throughout his letters, talks about what that looks like. So he says in 2 Corinthians 5, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once, we once did that. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. You're new creatures. There's a new you. The old self is gone. The new self has come. And the the new is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? That's what we say. So we're in Christ again and again and again in Christ, which is 160 opportunities (laughs) to learn about who you are, actually. Um, And so it's it's not just a matter of, you know, claiming Bible verses for yourself. Name it and claim it. Uh, To have your identity in Christ means immersing yourself in those truths. Like every day. Being reminded of your identity, that it's a way of placing your confidence in Jesus, your life, your eternity, uh, your story, and learning from him to do all that you do with and for Jesus, in Jesus, for the kingdom of God. The, see, the truth of what God says about you, has to, it, it's more true and has to penetrate your heart more fully, saturate your life, if you're ever going to be transformed. And so the invitation, uh, I don't think I brought one of those cards up with me, We handed these out last week, and they're on the table in the back. Yeah, I don't have one. I wanted to kind of wave it, but some of you grabbed them last week. It it says Identity Truths on the top, and they're on the table here. Um, You can actually text IDENTITY 64600. I think we talked about this last week, if that's helpful to you. Um, And then you'll get the card, if you like to have it on your phone. And the reason we have that is, again, to immerse ourselves in this kind of practice, maybe... Um, during the whole sermon series, you decide I'm going to use this as a tool to sort of immerse myself in this truth. Maybe you look over it and and there's one you want to hold on to for a whole week and say, hey, I'm beloved. I need to hear that. Maybe you look over it and you see there's one that's particularly real right now. You're going through a hard season um, and there's one that just you just feel like resonates like a tuning fork and you stay with that for as long as you stay with that. Um, See, it's a tool for transformation. That's why we give this to you for the truth of who you are to to break forth. And that's why I want you to have it. So to that end, I want to close. I want to invite our our worship team back up. Um, I just want to encourage you kind of um, reviewing what I said. Becoming honest with who we are, with ourselves, uh, wrestling with these things that God, um, the things of God, like few other things can. has the power to open us up and change us like few other things can. Um, we, we begin to experience in a deep, deep, deep way our belovedness. Um, we discover depths of love we've never previously experienced. Uh, and so this week, might we as a community ask God to shed his light on our lives, first of all, revealing the Jacob that's in us. There is a Jacob in every one of us. There's a Jacob in me as one of your pastors. Um, in other words, there's, there's times we pretend to be who we're not. And, and God wants us to see that and, and face that. There's times where we evade hard issues. I do this all the time. It's just going to be too hard. That conversation, that topic, it's going to be too hard. And so I just evade it. There's times where we might manipulate or control others to get our way. God wants us to face that. Um, and, and remember, might we remember also that God wants to bless us in the midst of that, uh, that radical honesty and self-examination. Um, part of, as we go into tomorrow uh, in Martin Luther King Day, is an opportunity to do that. Radical self-honesty and blessing. Like, to engage in radical self-honesty collectively as a nation, as a, as a community, but also personally. Um, to confess that racism is still real in our world. That um, the image of God and others has been exploited and abused, and to commit or recommit to hard but courageous work of anti-racism and reconciliation. Um, it's not just a one day a week journey, and it's hard. Like having conversations about race is uncomfortable. <laughs> um, that takes self-examination. It takes this willingness to stay engaged and to release control. That's I mean that's J- that's Jacob saying I'm not Jacob, I'm Israel. I can do this. So to that end, uh, Silas and I just wanted to let you know that we're going to post some ways you might be able to do that tomorrow and and then in the coming months on our Facebook site, um, later today or tomorrow, just ways that we as a community can engage in that work. Because again, it's not a one-off, not a a one-day-a-year thing. It's a journey we're on, okay? Um, But hear this. Beneath all of that, God is always, his eternal desire is always like the Father in Luke 15 to preemptively bless your life, whatever it is. And thus you can ask God, just like Jacob, bless me. <laughs> I want to be blessed. I'm broken, bless me. God wants and desires to bless you. Um, so might we hear the spirit within our hearts telling us of our belovedness and our union and his desire to transform us and claim that. This is who I am, God. This is who you, what you have for me. All right, and then we come alive. We're gonna uh, sing to God now. And um, we're holding a lot. Uh, I just said a lot. <laughs> Kids will come back in and it'll be a lot of motion happening. So let me just take a moment to pray before we have that happen. God, the work of you revealing to us who we've been and then who we are is This massive work. Um, It happened in a moment for Jacob, it seems. But I have this picture of that wrestling match going on for years and years and years. And each of us, God, in our own way, has been in that sort of fight to understand who we are. And we keep coming back, God, to you and asking, who are we? Who am I? What do you have for me? So God, um, we have a desire to be honest. We have a desire to be blessed. So would you meet us in those desires this week, God? We we thank you for the opportunity to engage in those things. Pray in Christ's name.